Ahoy, and welcome to Not Allowed to Die, your podcast that pulls back the curtain on mental health and how treatment works. I am Dan Magler, social worker and life enthusiast, who is going to share with you today some musings and reflections on the things I'm encountering in my practice. Sitting alongside me is my co-host, Mariska, the sleeping dog, who you may hear snoring or whatnot as we record. So today I wanted to talk a little bit about um, one of my favorite things happened last week in a session, which is one of my clients challenged me um, on a way I had been framing and looking at an issue. I was talking to a client who is also an eating disorders expert. And it's interesting, some people, some of my students or clients, they, they dream of someday becoming a therapist, but they worry, you know, they have this idea that if they are still dealing with their own issues, that they might not be able to help others. And if you think that therapists have all their lives perfectly together and they have all the answers in their own lives, uh, think again. Most therapists are far from perfect in their own execution of their life. It's just always a lot easier to help other people than yourself because you're looking at life from 30,000 feet and you're not in it. As I often describe to people, and I may have said this on the podcast before, the benefit of therapy and the therapist is similar to the benefit of your bathroom mirror. When you brush your teeth, you don't need a mirror to brush your teeth. You could do it without the mirror. The mirror just helps you see the spots that you're too close to that you might have missed. And that's what therapists do. We just reflect back. So a person who has issues with anxiety, has issues with depression, has issues with eating, is so much better to sometimes be able to spot those things that you might be too close to to see, even if when they go back to their home, their own life, they're still having issues with it. So she and I were talking and she had mentioned that in uh, a conversation with someone else, they had used the framework of looking at eating disorders as an addiction and how it bothered her. And I was surprised because, and you may have heard me say it on this podcast, I have often considered eating disorders, you know, the sec- I always say it's the second hardest of all the addictions to treat, the hardest of all the addictions to treat being an addiction to unhealthy love. And, you know, she said, yes, I've heard you say that. And I, like, I was, she was being polite, I think, to not push back on that. But so I said, tell me more. Help me understand why looking at eating disorders as an addiction, because in my framework, an addiction is something, is a, a relationship with a behavior that becomes the dominant relationship of our life, where we will lie and hide things and cover up, do anything to preserve that relationship. And so it doesn't matter if it's gambling or cocaine or sex addiction or so anything becomes an addiction when it's crowding out the space in our life and stepping on and pushing out the space for the things that should be there. So we can some people say, well, you can't get addicted to pot because it's not addictive. And it's like, no, 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 you, you can get addicted just like you can get addicted to gambling. You can get addicted to anything, even if it doesn't have a physical addictive property, because it's the endorphins and things that it makes set off in our brain and the way we manage our emotions and the way we manage our life. So she said the problem with viewing eating disorders as an addiction, and again, I hope I'm not butchering what she was explaining to me. But one, what I took from that is one of the problems is when we most addictions, we're using an abstinence model in treatment. We're saying, all right, you just need to cut that gambling out of your life. You just need to cut that heroin out of your life. And it's also made shamed and made to seem as a bad thing, that this thing is just negative in your world and we just need to get rid of it. And what that doesn't take into account for eating specifically is that there is a truly positive function of restricting your eating and limiting your eating and being aware of what you're eating. And people don't usually come up to you 
you know, on the street and say, oh my God, you're so drunk, you look so amazing. Whereas with a person who's lost 15 pounds, they're going to get that reinforcement. So in the eating disorders world, she expressed that they often will, there's books and things like that where they'll talk about Ed, Ed, eating disorder almost as like a figure and seeing it really as a relationship. And I think that's interesting, but I said, maybe the problem in my own mind as we were, and I were discussing is less this idea that we're treating eating disorders this way, because obviously we know with eating disorders, you can't just abstain. You have to eat and not eat. And she's saying, if you view every hour of every day and every time you're thinking about eating as this relationship with pathology, it's really negative. Whereas if we're viewing this as a relationship with a behavior, but it's almost, it, again, it can be this positive beneficial friend, this partner that just has some toxic qualities. So maybe instead, and again, there, there are people who really question the abstinence model for addictions generally as, because when we look at treatment for say anxiety, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people to be more comfortable in their discomfort. Now, again, I think it is simpler, more efficient, and more effective to just say to a person who has alcoholism, you just need to stop. You just need to stay away. But that's not how we would treat any other, if a person had a huge discomfort with riding elevators, we would just not say, hey, you just need to stop with the elevators. <laughs> you just, you know, you need to do, take the stairs, like to stay away from it. This makes you uncomfortable. This is bad for you. The difference being the alcohol can have such a powerful hold. But with eating disorders, we almost have to treat it that way. We have to say, no, you have to get comfortable living in that bar, having just enough drinks every day. And so the treatment for eating issues um, has to be very different and we have to frame it differently. I guess in my mind, I think we need to view all of these relationships, all of these things that can be addictions as maybe a series of, so instead of putting eating issues under the framework of addiction, we need to put all addictions and all of these toxic partnerships, you know, under the, uh, under the framework of toxic partnerships. And we need to say, whether it's my relationship with alcohol, whether it's, and I, I see this most with self-injury. I've, there's a nine inch nail song, Hurt, which was covered beautifully by Johnny Cash. And it expresses kind of the relationship. And I don't know that Trent Rose was writing it about self-injury, but this idea, you know, my sweetest friend, everyone else I know goes away in the end, you know, like this, so this idea of a behavior and addiction as a friend, as a partner, I was talking about this concept in a group I had on Friday and one of the students piped up and he said, so it's kind of like a parasitic relationship. And I said, not exactly because a parasite takes without truly giving anything back. These are instead partnerships that have become toxic. They are this behavior, again, for a person with self-injury issues, this idea that they can go to sleep at night knowing that that razor blade is in their bookshelf. And again, they might not use it tonight, but if things got really bad and they couldn't sleep, it would be there for them. And they know it's available. So often the first thing I'll, we do a lot of things like impulse control logs and whatnot, but one of the things we'll do is try to say, hey, can you just get it out of your room? Make it a little harder for yourself to do this. But if we're viewing these things again as a partnership and realizing that they do have a positive function, just like, as I said, the hardest of all these, now I'll call them toxic partnerships to treat being a relationship to unhealthy love. When we're dealing with a person who has a partner who is demeaning them, who is abusing them, even if it's not physical, even if it's only psychological, and I say only, psychological can be many times more damaging. Um, 
and again, a great book, if I haven't referenced it before, is In the Dream House. Um, so again, it, it shows intimate partner violence in a lesbian relationship, which is almost very rarely physical, but you can see how damaging and destructive the psychological portions of that can be. We can say, we realize that there is a, there truly is a partnership between in this couple and this intimate partner violence situation where the toxic partner is often bringing something good. So people who find themselves in intimate partner violence relationships are not stupid people that they often blame themselves. They say, how could I be so dumb? How could I let this happen again and again? Well, the same is true for all of these. It's not stupid people who become alcoholics. It's not stupid people who become gambling addicts. We could say, but how could you let that take over your life? It's not stupid people who become, have developed a relationship with Ed. It is, it was a, a beneficial relationship in some way at some point that grew and got out of control. Another aspect that I want to read for myself and, you know, here to here first, I am changing the term eating disorders in my own mind to food fixation disorder. Because I think eating disorder gives a false impression that the problem is with the eating. And that can be the case. But the real problem that I'm working on with clients is how much of a person's life food eating and not eating takes over. So when we talk about it as food fixation disorder, even people who are eating five perfectly balanced small meals a day, and but if they're walking down the, they're thinking about nutrient contents and how much fiber is in everything, and they and that's crowding out their ability to enjoy watching their kids' soccer game or doing other things. If they are avoiding going out to dinner with some friends because they're just like, oh, they're gonna be eating there. So maybe I can just meet up for drinks. That food fixation, it's not actually necessarily the eating and the consuming or the keeping it down that is the main problem. So we're looking at, and again, it also helps us. What is the function of a label? Well, it's supposed to help us guide treatment. And when we say eating disorder, it's as if we're going to teach people how to chew and how to swallow. Whereas I think when we talk about food fixation as the disorder, we need to talk to people about what was that fixation doing for you? What else was it maybe crowding out? And we often talk about this idea of needing control. So how else can we give you that? We're not going to be able to eliminate this toxic partnership. We're never going to, and that's the thing to understand. And we'll say with, with many of these toxic partnerships, they're never going to go away completely because even if a person hasn't had a drink for 30 years, again, there's a part of them that is still fixated and building their life around it. And what was it doing and not doing for them? But with lots of mental health issues, with beyond toxic partnerships, even with things like depression, anxiety, the more we can reframe these and view them as a chronic health issue. And the one I often come back to is diabetes. So if a person knows that they have diabetes, do they have to manage what they're eating? Of course. Do they have to be aware of it? Sure. But when most of us have a friend with diabetes, it's just a small factor about them, just like they might have an allergy to cats. But it's not, it's something that is managed, but it doesn't define them in any way. And that's where we want all of these these toxic partnerships to say, okay, this is a part of who I am, my depression, my anxiety, whatever, or Ed, or my food fixation, or my my history of alcoholism or whatnot. These are a part of who I am. There will be times when I'm not balancing my risk factors and resiliency factors when it will flare up more. Talking to a client who she was trying to decide, again, whether she was really depressed or if it was just so many life circumstances that were coming at her all the time. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that much 
if it's you know just life circumstances it's really what are the what's the impact on your life and what are we going to do to treat it because she was saying so many aspects of my life are so great i have a great job i have great friends i you know just have a lot of positives in my life in the case of this client though she had a lot of life traumas in childhood and she has family dynamics and relationships that are still incredibly challenging so if we imagine our overall mental health as a bucket of water so we have to balance like and all of us the, this bucket it leaks we all have leaks and the bigger the more stress we have in our life the bigger the leaks get in addition every life trauma that we've ever had it's like drilling a little hole in the bucket and so your bucket's going to leak out faster if you have traumas particularly if they have not been treated and dealt with so we can plug some of those holes with using positive coping skills other things like that but when we experience a bigger stressor it will kind of rip those plugs out and pour pour the water out more quickly so what we're doing all the time is trying to make this ratio of balance between positive resources that that water coming in those things that are filling us to balance out those things that are draining us and so often one of the first things i'm asking my clients when they're when their symptoms are increasing let's say they're taking medication and gosh it feels like everything's getting harder right now i don't know if my meds are working well i'll ask or if people don't even want to take medication we'll say the first thing i'll say is what are we doing to maintain your emotional health hygiene regularly are we going for walks are we painting drawing journaling playing the accordion whatever it is that person needs to do meditating so again we're pouring more water in and that's kind of what medication is often doing for people it's trying to balance pouring a little bit more water in and in increasing our our uptake of serotonin and other things like that because people may say well i don't want to be dependent on medication well yeah that's for most people they will not be and no one should want to be <laughs> on medication it's more can i balance out making sure i'm i'm getting things if i don't especially if i'm going undergoing particular amount of stress okay school is stressful for me i've got a year and a half left of college and i can't once that stops i might not have that issue or i've got twins running around the house and we're moving and all these other things okay well now i might need to add something in to help balance that out so coming back to this idea of reframing and saying we need to when we're looking at eating disorder particularly we want i am going to thanks to the help of this client um and if you ever have anything that i say on this podcast i would love it if you are saying hey i don't really know if you're right on that could you speak a little bit more email me at daniel.magler@live.com and tell me hey i i want to challenge you a little bit because it's made me reframe it's made me look at eating disorders differently and all addictions really differently and saying now how can i view this as this toxic partnership And if I want this partnership to end, when I have a client in an intimate partner violence relationship and I want it I want to to get them to somewhere better, what I don't do is just badmouth their partner. What I do instead is try to make them stronger in every other aspect of their life so they can move away from that. And then hopefully help them see that they are less dependent on that. And that's why, you know, intimate partners will try to strip a person away and keep them away from friends or other things that that fill them that reinforce them because they're afraid they'll lose them and they will um ideally because that's you know and that's part of the the insecurity and the toxicity of that partnership and similarly 
whether it's our depression, whether it's some of these other behaviors, will try to keep us from branching out and strengthening ourselves. But the more I can strengthen other areas of a client, increase their resiliency factors, I can make them less dependent on that single partnership. And I can see how much of the, the damage of that toxic partnership I can eliminate. But I'm going to have less pushback from a client about trying to get them to eliminate a relationship, whether it's with a person or whether it's with a behavior. If I stop just pathologizing it and I recognize that there are positive things that this relationship has done for you, but now it's time to see how else we can we can fill that up. And you can you can steal and use that idea of food fixation disorder or just kind of play around with it in your mind because when we're trying to help people who have eating issues, the more we think about the fixation rather than the behavior just, just of eating, I think the better we're going to be able to help that person in the long run. So I hope all of you enjoy your Indigenous Peoples Day. I'm so glad we're not calling it Columbus Day anymore because he really does not deserve a holiday. And uh, be great with the people that are in your life. Show some kindness and care and do whatever it takes to get you through this world. And just remember, you are not allowed to die. And now for something completely different. Sometimes there are no words. Sometimes we need love, care, support, and affection. We don't want to explain anything. For young people with mental health issues like anxiety, depression, OCD, autism, therapy is often not enough. Paws for Patrick is an organization dedicated to connecting the love of animals to the people who need it the most. We facilitate that connection by assigning the seekers who contact us a wish granter who listens to their story and their needs and helps them acquire an animal or training or documentation so they can have their emotional support animal or ESA in their apartment, dorm, condo, etc. We even have trained therapy dogs and handlers who bring dogs to people who can't have their own. Patrick rarely had the words to express his feelings and his needs, but when he had the love of his dog Cece, he had the strength to persevere. We want to provide every young person who could benefit that kind of love and support. Please check out our website at pauseforpatrick.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a need, reach out. If you want to help become a volunteer, fill out the form on our website. If you can donate, great, but please at least spread the word so we can replace the suffering in silence that many people do with the smiles and security that only the love of an animal can bring.